Welcome to Photo Taco, the only show with photography tips you can learn in the time it takes to eat a taco. Or perhaps a burrito. Photo Taco! Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Photo Taco on the Improved Photography Network. I'm your host, Jeff Harmon. Thanks for spending a few minutes of your day with me in today's episode. I am joined by very special guest, Bill Claff. We will touch on Bill's background in just a moment, but I asked him to come on the show so that we could do a deep dive into some science and math behind his photographic dynamic range data. You can see over at his cool site, photons2photos.net. That's not photos to photos, photons2photos.net. And I made that mistake when I was first going over to the site based on a listener recommendation. So make sure you get that right, photons2photos.net. We'll we'll go over that again at the end of the show. Before we start, the reason I wanted to go into this with Bill today is the whole concept of dynamic range. Now, we regularly discuss dynamic range on all of the Improved Photography podcasts, and you'll hear it across any photography-based podcast episode along with uh, articles. It's, It's constantly discussed. But we talk about it in fairly abstract ways. And it's kind of bothered me. We generally say that dynamic range is how much of a scene can be captured from the brightest brights to the darkest darks and how it is that some scenes can't fully be captured in a single shot because the difference between those brights and darks is just too great for the sensor to capture. It's a process called bracketing that we use to kind of overcome that. And I've gone over it in detail on this show in past episodes, which you can find by doing a Google search for photo space taco, space bracketing. And that should come up with that episode where I go over that. Bill has done a tremendous job, though, of taking that abstract concept of dynamic range and really breaking it down into like hard science and math, which is something I absolutely love. And I hope you will, too. So welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks. All right. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about your background. Then what do you do with photography? How would you get into this whole photons to photos thing? Well, uh, I've always had a strong interest in and in sort of knack for math and science, and I got an applied uh, math degree, and I sort of succumbed to the lure of the computer industry. But I think if I hadn't been a programmer, I almost certainly would have been a math or science, you know, teacher in the junior high school or high school. I've always had uh, teaching as one of my passions. Uh, you know, regarding photography, you know, my my dad gave me a camera when I was a teenager. Back in the film days, didn't uh, get to shoot a lot because of the expensive film and processing. But uh, later, I did get a Nikonos 5, which is an underwater Nikon, and has spent many hours taking pictures snorkeling. And uh, I went digital early on. I started scanning my slides before digital cameras were common. Uh-huh. I used to joke. I used to joke that I had a, an eight megabyte digital camera, but it only it took two weeks to take a picture. <laughs> right. Because uh, of course, yeah, I did the slides to develop first. Um, I've always enjoyed being outdoors, I always have my camera with me, so I sort of just take pictures as I go along, lots of landscape and wildlife, including, you know, flowers and insects, I do a lot of close-up work, and I get really close up in the winter when I stay indoors and I use my trinocular microscope and do all kinds of stacking and very, very close work, it's pretty cool. Very cool. Okay, so why did you build then this photons2photo.net website? Well, I think part of that goes to just the desire to to share and teach. I I learned some stuff using my own digital camera and using my math background. I started digging into the, the technical aspects of sensors. And my um, internet service provider at the time offered free web pages, so I built a page and I just started sharing my information. 
which, uh, you know, recently, a, year, a couple of years ago, I transformed into a, a more a sophisticated site, the photonstophotos.net. And so it's really just a way of sharing. Uh, I, I enjoy doing that. And I've also found, uh, if you like, what I get out of it is I found that, that when I try to teach a concept, I learn about the things I don't know. So for me, it's actually a learning experience to try to write or speak about a topic uh, helps me understand it better. Yeah, it's one of the things I love about doing this Photo Taco podcast. Uh, listeners ask questions that I'll have a general familiarity with. I'll think I understand it even. And then I go dig into the details to uh, to create an entire podcast episode about it where I go research a, a lot. I spend hours and hours usually just to make a 30-minute podcast. And uh, and I love learning the additional detail. I, I Most of the time I go into something thinking I know about it and I come out after preparing for a podcast episode knowing way more about it than, than I did and uh, kind of uh, realizing how little I knew about it in the first place when I thought I did. So And I've had lots of listeners kind of uh, comment on that too that they thought they knew about the topic I was covering and then when once they listen to the episode, they're like, wow, there was a lot more there than I didn't know. So love this, this whole topic. I'm really excited to, to get into it. So you, you take the raw files from cameras and you put it through some kind of process in order to come up with this data that you've got. Can you go into some, some detail about that? We don't spend a lot of time on it, but I'm interested sure. in, in what you do there. Well, let, so let's take, just take a step back also, something that people who are, already know about my site might not be aware of, but almost all of the raw files that I use um, are prepared for me by other people all around the world sure. to my specification and sent to me generally over my Dropbox, but there are other ways. I don't actually have my hands on most of these cameras. So long as I have appropriate raw files to process, I can get the information that I need. And so over, the, over time, I have developed a pretty semi-automatic uh, process of, of doing all of the data. Our topic today is photographic dynamic range, but I do a wide range of testing. I test uh, things such as read noise. I test for uh, fixed pattern noise, and, and I do some other tests. So there are three or four tests that I perform, the photographic dynamic range being the one that I'm best known for. Um, I'm not sure how much more detail I can get than that without sort of falling off the cliff into the into the deep abyss. <laughs> okay, um, okay. But, but you, you're like I I, I can't say about the photographic dynamic range for those who might have an inkling about this. It's a little bit like taking a photograph of uh, of a wedge that has a lot of different gray values in it. Okay. And constructing a, a curve from values that are taken automatically out of that wedge, and locating an appropriate place on that curve where I've deemed that the uh, quality of the photograph would be sufficient for people's purposes. Okay. All right. Very good. So there's, you, you take these raw files. You, okay. So if listeners want to help you with this, if they want to get some data added to your, your website that you don't have today, uh, what is it they'd have to do? Absolutely. If someone goes to the site and they don't see their camera and they would like to compare it against others uh, on in my data, at the bottom of my site, it's kind of a long scroll down, I admit, uh, it's my contact information, email address, and they could get in touch with me and I'll, uh, I'll you know, work on it with them. I call it collaboration. I have some collaboration uh, instructions. Okay. It involves taking a fair number of raw files. It's kind of tedious. Um, 
depends on how many ISO settings the camera has, but generally runs between 40 and 70 files. Okay. A lot of them are, are black frames, and so it's become uh, a joke uh, in various forums that um, I'm very much in love with the use of negative space. <laughs> because it's all black. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, and are they taking pictures of, you, you mentioned like a wedge, is there something in particular that you're having them take a picture of when it's not a black frame? Yes, actually these are test images that you put on your computer screen and you uh, take a picture of that. Okay. And people also, the purists, kind of worry about whether um, I'm controlling the light source for its spectral qualities and so forth. But the way the test is constructed, it's sort of self-calibrating in that regard. I really care about is brightness, the uh, the spectral uh, properties of the light that is has got a lot of green in it, or a lot of blue, or a lot of red compared to others. That doesn't turn out to be very important. Yeah. Okay. All right. So very good, listeners. If you want to help Bill out, you can go check out his site. His uh, the graphs that you can build to compare the cameras. Uh, it's one of the things I love the best about the site. I, I've done that a lot to be able to compare them. And it's kind of helped me. Um, fight back on the gear acquisition syndrome that a lot of photographers have uh, because it makes me realize that, you know, the, the difference between them, it is not so big that that is going to probably have as big an impact on my photography by upgrading my camera body as I think and uh, makes it easier to say, you know what, I don't need that. I, I'm okay where I'm at. There's so much for me to work on without getting a new camera body that uh, that I'm good. So anyway, it's it's a, it's in interesting information if nothing else. Really super interesting to go and compare this. Um, before I have three questions left for Bill that we're going to walk through. But before we do, I'm going to take a break here and uh, and thank our sponsor for this episode, and that is the Improve Photography Retreat 2018. I hope you all have noticed that the Improved Photography team approaches teaching and encouraging photographers a little differently from a lot of others. It's right there in the name. We want to help everyone improve their photography. And our yearly conference is no exception. We want the conference to be different from all the others, so much that we don't actually call it a conference. We call it a retreat. We hope it's going to be an experience where you can come and get a, a full hands-on week that's just a blast, just so much fun to be around others that are like-minded, who are trying to improve their photography and want to help each other and build each other up. With the Improved Photography Retreat, our goal then is to do that in a week. And there'll be something for every type and experience level of photography at the retreat, from those just getting started to the well-seasoned pro. If you're hearing this episode as it's released in July 2017, then tickets for the retreat are available over at improvephotography.com slash retreat for just $459. And if you're a subscriber to Improve Photography Plus or you attended the retreat in 2017, then you get tickets off, uh, $50 off. There are only 250 tickets available. They're kind of going fast, so I hope you'll consider buying a ticket and coming to join me and many other of the IP Photography Podcast hosts and some incredible non-improved photography people and talent over there for a week of immersion into photography. All right, so now number th our, our next question. And this is where we are we have the potential for losing some listeners, I think. So we'll try to be careful of that, Bill. 
Um, <clears throat> there are some attempts out there, and we'll talk about some of them in a moment. But on your site, you have a lot of math and analysis and processes you're used to describe a number that you call photographic dynamic range, and you abbreviate that PDR a lot on the site. Can you explain to someone who doesn't have significant math background, because I know you've got a ton of math and it's all fully explained out on the site, but can you kind of go through it, maybe a, a PDR for dummies kind of thing about what it is and how you measure it? Okay, well, as you say, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's a subtle, complicated question in its own way, but I'm sure we can get there in, in steps. We'll take, sure. a, take a few bites there. And... Um, in fact, well, let's just start off. So the, what is dynamic range itself? I mean, this seems sort of fundamental, but we throw the term around a lot, but we don't really always explain what that is. So, you know, dynamic range is, it's a logarithm, you know, the ratio between a high value and a low value. So you could say the high value is the brightest part of your scene, the low value is, is the darkest shadow that you care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and by brightest part of the scene, I don't mean the specular highlights, like something glinting off of something, the highest brightest part you care about photographically. Right, right. Um, in most engineering disciplines, you know, this is expressed in decibels, which has got to do with power 10. And you'll see some of that stuff in some of the more, you know, geeky sites. Uh, but in photography, we tend to think of things in terms of stops. So we use powers of two. Right. Okay. So two, four, eight, and so forth. So right off so, the bat, you've got sort of a translation problem. The math wants to be powers of 10, and, and we think in photography in powers of two. No, the engineers want to think of powers of 10, and the, the, the people who care and matter, the photographers, us, think of powers of 2. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, the only translation would, would come, that comes in commonly is people who visit the DxOMark uh, site. DxOMark tries to think of this in more engineering terms, which I think uh, didn't necessarily do a, a service to the photographic community by leading us into, into that little alleyway there. Okay. So... To measure dynamic range, we just need two numbers. We need a high value and a low value. Okay? So the high value is generally just the maximum amount of light that you can gather before you reach the capacity of the sensor. The sensor turns photons into electrons. It collects the electrons. It can only collect so many before it runs out of storage space, if you like. Okay. So the high value is actually pretty easy. Um, and generally, we don't even bother measuring it too precisely because of the logarithmic nature the value is not very important in its exact precision. But basically, you, you know, that's when you get your pictures blown out or clipped when you collect too much light. Right, okay? Right. Now, let's try to use a little scale. I think it might help. So if you tried to weigh a 40-pound suitcase on a digital scale that only goes to 32 pounds, it's going to tell you 32, even though the true value is 40. And that's, that's an example of clipping. Right. So the low value is the more interesting one. It's the smallest useful measurement that can be made, and the answer is not as simple as you might think, and there's two answers, at least two answers, but we'll start with the common one. But consider the digital scale again. Let's say we had a suitcase that we knew it weighed 20 and a half pounds and weighed it 100 times with our digital scale. Sometimes the scale will say 20, sometimes it would say 21. In fact, sometimes it would say 19 or 22. <laughs> right, right. It would vary because its precision is not perfect, okay? And if we took a histogram of those readings, it would form something that most people call a bell curve, you know, like hated, hated being grading on the curve in school, right? Right, right. 
yep. bell curve, which in mathematical circles is known as a normal or Gaussian distribution. Okay, for those of you who want to get into the math. <laughs> right. And okay. the amount that curve spreads out is a measure of how much variation there is in the scale's ability to accurately measure. So a more accurate scale, the stuff would be, you know, all clustered in the middle, and a less accurate scale would be spread out. And that measure is mathematical. It's called the standard deviation. And it's what we call noise. So noise is a standard deviation of a bell curve. So. Okay. If the measurements on that scale told us that the standard deviation was two, then another thing that follows from that is we probably don't have much confidence in weighing something less than two pounds in that scale. I mean, the standard deviation is two. I mean, wow, you're down to the point where it could be zero, you know, can't measure it accurately. And so for that scale, we might take the low value to be two, the most useful value. And that scale would have a dynamic range of four. Just follow me quick. 32 is how high it goes. 2 is the standard deviation or the noise. So that's 32 divided by 2 is 16. And the log base 2 of 16 is 4. 2 times 4 times 8, 16. Okay? okay. Gotcha. Uh-huh. So it's important to note that we've got a totally another, another scale, maybe a different brand, has exactly the same high value of 32 pounds, but it's more accurate and its standard deviation is only 1. Then the dynamic range goes from 4 to 5 because uh-huh. we have 35 by 1 is 32, and 32 log 2 is 5. So sensors are like this. They can have basically the same exact high value, but they can be more accurate or less accurate in how well the pixel can capture faithfully the amount of light, and that's what increases or decreases dynamic range there. Okay. So in photography, the digital scales are like the individual pixels in the sensor. And, you know, we determine how accurate the pixel is by reading something called read noise. We already introduced that noise is the standard deviation. Read noise is how it has to do with reading the value of the pixel. So it's the noise involved in reading that. If there were no read noise, it would be perfect. No such camera exists. (laughs) Okay. Some might Uh, argue. (laughs) There are none. But and there's more than one way to, to measure read noise, and I won't go into the details. There are different types of ways of computing it based on taking different raw data and treating it different ways. But generally, what you're interested in is how accurately the pixel can re- record pure black. Right, right. And so what I do for read noise, for example, is you take a, a black frame, lens cap, whatever type of frame, and you look at the distribution of that standard deviation, and that's what that's what the read noise is. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways of doing it. So that dynamic range that we discussed to this point, where you take the read noise and the highest value, and you divide them and take the logarithm, that is what I call engineering dynamic range to distinguish it from other dynamic ranges. It's the type of range that on the spec sheet for the sensor, you might actually find it. And on the spec sheet, it would probably be shown in decibels because those guys are engineers. Right, right. <laughs> okay. But we're almost a photographic dynamic range, I promise. But there's a <laughs> couple more concepts, okay? Because it's going to turn out, ultimately, it doesn't matter exactly how good the pixel is. It's the whole system. Okay. So what we... Visually, what we really care about is, uh, we're going to get that. So another term, if you like, 
the, the amount of light that's coming in, we're going to call that signal. That's the amount of signal coming in. Or audio could be the same thing. You know, right. you know how much audio signal you have coming coming in. And in our example of the suitcase, which was 20 and a half pounds, that was the signal. So the noise was two pounds and the signal was, was 20.5. And we have a ratio. It's called the signal to noise ratio. This is really important. And that's 20.5 divided by two, in this case, 10.25. Okay. In photography, because of the way the human eye works, if the signal noise ratio is low, then the signal's not strong enough to overcome the noise, and the noise becomes visually apparent. Noise is always there. If you take a picture and you think there's no noise there because it looks great to you, that's fine. But noise is always there. It's just the noise was drowned out by the signal. You had right. enough light. And it was bright enough to drown out the noise. Right. Okay. Okay. So at some point, the noise isn't visible. And having a higher SNR than that makes no difference. And there are actually some standard values that come out of the ISO standards. And they run roughly like this for what it's worth. You know, an SNR of five is sufficient for like surveillance to be able to, to see detail, 10 is considered acceptable. 20 is considered good, 40 is considered excellent. You might have noticed that those go by powers of two, two by five, 10, 20, Stops. 40. In any case, we, I use a SNR of 20, which is, which is uh, good, to, uh, as my threshold in the PDR. Okay, okay. Okay? So, now read noise isn't the only source of noise. I just want to throw this out there because this comes up in discussions. The important source of noise is the signal itself. This has to do with physics. It's called shot noise. But for light, light has something called photon noise. So just because you think you have a certain brightness of light falling on something, it actually isn't uniform. Things arrive in a sort of average rate. But if you, you might get, just like the bell curve, you might get 90 photons one second, 95 the next second, 93 the next, even though it's a constant source of light. So it's actually noise in the light itself. Okay, so let, let me st stop you there and see if this works. So the analogy that I've heard with that is thinking of like rain falling from the sky and exactly. trying to catch it with a ton of little tubes that are all kind of put in a grid. And it's not going to be uniformly, the water is not uniformly entering those tubes all at the same time. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That that's that's not uncommon. Um, I'm always kind of annoyed that those buckets aren't square, but that's a different. Story. <laughs> yeah, they're because they're round <laughs> tubes, right? Test tube kind of things, right? <laughs> they should be square, which, which which the pixels are. But that is the idea. It's there's a whole area of math here. Um, and again, for people who might be wanted to dig deep or get into googling something, um, the uh, light, the the noise and the light form something called the Poisson distribution. Um, and uh, for large amounts of uh, light, that distribution can't, is, is approximated by a normal or bell, bell curve, okay. slightly distribution. But I just want to point out there's always noise there. And in fact, you're almost counting on it. The, the, the photon noise is good. The other noise sources aren't. So let's get to the last part because we're really pretty close to understanding why photographic dynamic range makes sense and why you should pay attention to it. All right. So the final piece of the puzzle, if you like, is visual acuity. That is, when you look at something, 
there's a limit to the smallest thing that you can see. And that's uh, pretty well understood. It varies from person to person, but there's a, a standard value. It has to do with an angle. And that angle is, you can think of as a little thin cone coming from your eye and projecting out away from you. So this cone, this traffic cone, if you like, this long cone, where it strikes something, it makes a circle. You're mm -hmm. making a slice out of that cone. And that circle is called the circle of confusion. And it comes up in another totally different topic, uh, the depth of field. But basically, everything inside that circle, you can't distinguish. That's why the confusion. You can't distinguish between the points in there. So in analyzing the photographic dynamic range, we care about the signal-noise ratio of all the pixels of the sensor that fill that circle of confusion. So PDR is got nothing to do with resolution. A high-resolution sensor with, where it has a lot of pixels in that circle and they're very noisy, and a, and a larger, a, a lower-resolution sensor with bigger pixels and there's fewer of them, but they're less noisy, doesn't matter. What matters is what's the total signal-noise ratio inside that circle. Because mm -hmm. your brain's going to average it out. doesn't matter. Right, right. Uh, so... Now you have the sort of pieces in place, we can describe what photographic dynamic range is. By the way, <laughs> you'll see this in my writings. I used to write articles uh, for magazines, and scientific articles, and I have this habit of saying something, photographic dynamic range, and then in parenthesis, putting PDR, right. and then from then on, just using PDR. That is a, a standard way of writing and it's carried over into uh, the articles on my site and, and what I tend to do. So sure. that's why you also see PDR is a lot uh, easier to say than photographic dynamic range over and over. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So it's measured using a low value that depends on achieving a reasonable SNR for a typical circle of confusion. Okay? And I just want to point out there's a very closely related um, concept here that comes from the same curve. And it's the low-light ISO value. So what happens when you measure PDR is you get a curve. It uh, goes starts at a high value on the left, if you like, at lower ISO values. And as you move your ISO setting up, it goes down. At some point, it falls below a threshold that I consider to be reasonable. Our, you could think it's arbitrarily set, but it isn't. We won't go into that. But at that threshold, that ISO value is what I call the low-light ISO. So it's the highest ISO that you would probably get what I would consider to be reasonable results. Okay. All right. And where what is that on, on your graph? You got a, it's the vertical scale though on the graph then that mm -hmm. you would have that that's the PDR number and Correct. what PDR is it at that the low light ISO number is acceptable? What's the I use 6.5. It's okay. also documented on the graph, but yep, that's a good question. And my values for people who are who follow numbers at DxOMark, uh, my values are, are uniformly lower than theirs. We, we can get to that in a second. Um, in fact, I should go back and mention, for those who might visit the site, and I hope you do, and sort of play around there, that the site has a long uh, front page, but the first three sections are what people care the most about who are listening to this podcast. The first section are results from my own measurements from the raw files sent to me by others. The second section is a regurgitation of the data that can be taken off of DxOMark. 
they have tested far more cameras than I have, so I provide that sort of as a service. I always had that data as a sanity check on my own results, right. but I came to publish it because people found it useful. And the third is actually a small section that compares the two. It does, for example, a scatter chart of my PDR versus DxO Mark's landscape score, which is what their equivalent is. Their, their score is done differently, and I have a good reason, which we don't have time for, to claim that PDR is a better <laughs> than their landscape score. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But my question that I had for you here was, uh, cameras, as they're coming out right now, it, it's insane to me the level that the they'll say the the ISO capabilities of the camera. They go to some really huge ISO number. And um, the caveat that almost everyone talks about then when camera specs are released are, okay, yeah, they say the upper end that you can go to is, I don't know, 256,000 ISO or some really huge number. Um, yeah, 4 million. Yeah, or four million, right? There's been that <laughs> Canon camera that where they talked about that, uh, and and the caveat is always talked about is, but it'll be an absolute snowstorm of noise if you if you actually shoot at that level. So you're you're saying that the the PDR number can help us understand uh, after you've tested it and after you've got the information out of the raw files, uh, what the actual like highest ISO is that you can go to where it's it's generally a good enough photo. Yes. Um, so you touched on a number of things. So I'll just throw out a few, a few comments. I have no idea why the cameras implement ISO settings that go that high, whether it's just competition, whether it's the engineer saying, well, we can do it. So we will, um, very few people get, uh, you know, useful results at those, uh, right. high levels. But, but if you can do it and someone gets something useful, fine. And remember, the standard is much lower for things like surveillance. Sure. So if you were taking a, a photograph for surveillance purposes and you were, took it at ISO 1 million, you know, if it was distinguishable, um, not a beautiful thing you would frame, but distinguishable, you can get the license plate off the car or whatever, maybe that is all you need. Sure. Okay. Now, also, the PDR level itself is something that people should develop their own personal preference. Right. What, what I like is for someone who's done a little bit of photography, who has bumped up against the ISO uh, setting ceiling on their current camera, you can go to the site and you can look at the curve for your camera and you can see what, uh, what PDR that was. Now, if you're picky, if you print large prints and view them closely, your PDR threshold may be higher. It might be seven or seven and a half or eight. If you're less picky, it might be lower, like six or five and a half. Right. So, and that would change the highest ISO setting that you would find useful. So you find your own particular PDR preference, and then you can also use that to compare cameras. You're considering upgrading your camera or changing cameras, and you want to know, well, you know, for my typical photography, uh, how much higher an ISO setting will I be able to use with this new camera? You can get a very good feeling for that from the PDR charts. Yes. I agree. Yeah, that's what what I love about that graph. And it's what's convinced me that I'm okay where I'm at, <laughs> which is which is good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm satisfied. I don't feel like the ISO on my camera is what's limiting my photography. Now, I hope to get there. I hope that 
my technique improves so much that that is the thing. That is the one thing I need. At that point, then it will fully justify investing in a, in a bigger camera. Body. And I've talked about this on previous uh, Photo Taco episodes about uh, how to evaluate if you want if you should get a new camera body or not or where to make your next investment if you're like a beginner hobbyist who's who's working on building out their gear um, kind of what how do you make those choices and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes um, okay so and, and I love that I love being able to compare them I love being able to go and and see using those graphs about okay this is the like the the highest ISO where where it's good on my camera, where I I'm, I like it, and like I said, I for the most part that's fine for where I'm at today. And then you can see any other brand where you've got data, any other model where you've got data, how much more room you've got in that same ISO setting, or or how further you can take the ISO. So I I, I love it. It's it's a really neat graph to be able to see that. And listeners, if you want to check that out, make sure you go to photons2photos.net. And, uh, and just play around with that graph. Simple to use, really easy kind of thing. And I'll put a, a link directly to the, the page where the graph is at so you can get there. All right, so we, we talked a little bit about the, um, the DxO mark numbers. I want you to go into a little bit more about that. How is it we should compare PDR to their, they have like a, they call it their dynamic range score and they they just give it a number which you can compare right, it right. against their own numbers but it means nothing on its own to me um they're <laughs> trying to compare it to evs in some way and um so maybe i don't know if that's going to be can be part of your explanation about the two but if you can just kind of walk us through how do those two things compare that would be great sure sure um well, first, uh, just a slight correction. I mean, the DxOMR calls that the landscape score. Sure. A lot of people do just throw out the DR, but it's the landscape score. And their landscape score is analogous to my PDR, okay. except that it's determined differently. For one thing, they use read noise. They don't use a signal-noise ratio. And technically, I'm, I'll make an argument that that is a severe error. And in any case, they wind up with uh, values that are sort of off in extreme cases. But in general, if you look at the scatter chart that I prepared of my PDR versus the landscape score for DxO Mark, you find that mine are about three and a quarter EV lower. EV is just a way of saying stops, powers of two. Right. So they pretty much correlate. They make sense. There are places where the DxO Mark landscape score goes off the rails, and that's another story. So some people are very fond of it. I happen to think PDR is a better choice. If you wanted to drill down on that, look, for example, at something like the Nikon D7200. DxOMark says that camera is better, has a better score than several full-frame cameras. The physics say otherwise. It's really not possible because the area of the sensor is so much different. Uh-huh. But they have that. And they also have the analogous, if you like, they have their low-light ISO which I, they have their sports ISO, which is analogous to my low-light ISO. And again, there are differences in how they're computed. Um, and I think that my low-light score makes more sense than theirs, but that's just my claim. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, so, so that's the SOMARC rundown. All right. And, and I guess, you know, the thing I, the, the way that it's presented on DxO's site, I think speaks to photographers a little bit because they, they have that score represented in EV values. And it makes you think like at some, some, let's say, I, I think it was like a 14.8 
was one of the ones that I saw. It was like the highest end, the the best landscape score that I saw out of the something like that. I can't remember the exact number now. Um, right. Which and and they put so they put like fourteen point eight EV. So me as a photographer, I'm thinking, okay, that means that it can have fourteen point eight stops of light that it captures in a single photo. That if the darkest part of the scene is fourteen point eight EVs away from the brightest, then it can capture that all of those tonal ranges in a single shot, and I won't have to bracket. Um, sure. How does that compare with PDR? Well, I'm not certain which camera that is, but I'm kind of guessing it might be something like the Nikon D810. Yeah, I think that was it. Um, which is a PDR of eleven point six, which again is three odd. You know, stops uh, less. My site, the chart says log two, but log two is EV. EV is stops. It's a log two. So okay. really using the same units. Uh, well, I, I would, again, this, this is where their measure is too generous. That camera does not have over 14 stops of dynamic range that is usable to you as a photographer. The Pixel has that. And if you used it as a scientific instrument to measure something, you could measure something useful into that range. But if you viewed a photograph that had that much of a range, the deep shadows would have noise that was visible to you, apparent and objectionable. Uh, okay. And so they're, they're ignoring the fact that of this visual acuity, the fact that there's a circle there that blends together adjacent pixels and so forth. So... You know, that's the fundamental difference there. Um, you mentioned the charts a couple times, and I just want to not forget to mention that I use um, high charts, uh, JavaScript charts that are available. And um, there's just, it's a boon to me, just wonderful that I did not have to develop the entire charting package myself. Right. And I find that their package works really well, and I'm really glad that I'm able to use it to do these visualizations and uh, expose my data in a meaningful way to people. Yeah, it's great. I, I love the charts. So the is that the right way to think about it, though? Whether it's the landscape score from DxO or from your site, it's it is that the difference between the darkest and the brightest can be that value, whether it's PDR or the landscape score. And as long as the light in your scene is less than that, you can capture it in a single shot. Is that kind of how photographers should think of these numbers? Sure, exactly. And in terms of purchases also, you should remember that if, you're, if your typical scene doesn't have more than, let's say, 10 stops of dynamic range, you don't need a camera that does more than 10 uh, for a PDR. The rest is, is overkill. It's latitude. It means you can miss the exposure by a little bit and still get stuff. But at some point, you know, you don't need a car that goes 200 miles an hour instead of one that goes 150 if the fastest you're going to go is, is 70. <laughs> right, so, right. you know, it might affect your acceleration a little bit, but at some point it, it doesn't matter. And another technical thing I'll just throw out, not to derail people, but there are good reasons to believe that the optics and things called flare inside the camera, the just the whole box, the light travels through to get to the sensor, mm -hmm. that that's a limiting factor in dynamic range. And that in fact, you can't really collect more than about 11 or 12 stops of dynamic range, period. So we may already be there. Now it's really a question of 
of pushing it out to the higher ISOs. But definitely at the low ISO values, cameras can already probably capture everything that the optical system and camera box can supply. Okay. All right. So we're kind of reaching a peak on, on what the, uh, uh, like you said, the ISOs. And that's really where the race is at right now. I just, it seems like that is the, besides megapixels, which used to be kind of the big thing camera manufacturers were going after, uh, that seems like de-emphasized today. Uh, everyone's got high megapixels. So now it's the ISO performance, that that uh, high ISO number. Why they keep doing that on the marketing to put some insanely high ISO number. That feels like what they're going after. But uh, just to make sure I understand that last statement right, you're talking, you're saying then that there are other factors that are limiting it so that really that the high ISO number is not the most meaningful metric to, to look at. No, I think, let me rephrase. I mean, we've got two axes. We have the sort of the Y axis, the vertical one, and the X axis, the, the left and right. I'm saying that above a certain height, it, that really doesn't matter because you can't collect the scene. Even if your scene, bright beach with shadows or whatever, has 15 stops of actual dynamic range in the scene. Okay. Once it travels through your lens and bounces around in the internals of the camera and hits the sensor, because of something called flare, you've really only got 11 or 12 stops. So once you've got 11 or 12 stops of photographic dynamic range, you don't need to go higher. Okay. But okay. you do want to go further to the right. You want to be able to do that at ISO 4000 rather than ISO 1000. Uh, okay. So that that is meaningful. All right. All right. I'm with you now. I'm glad we did that. <laughs> Make sure I have that right. Okay. So last last question that i have for you i hope i think we've got it to the point where a lot most of the listeners are going to be following if, if i can follow it i think most everyone else can so that's that's good um so i'm a canon shooter so currently shooting the canon 72 and when i compare it to some others that have are supposed to have significantly better dynamic range so like the 72 has 11.8 ev on dxo uh the canon 80d 13.2 EV, the 5D4, 13.6, the Nikon D810, 14.8. So the difference in the PDR numbers compared to like the, those are the DxO numbers, the PDR that doesn't seem like there's nearly as much in between. And I think we kind of explained this already about how your numbers, they're, they're just based differently enough that the, the comparison between the cameras might be more fair than perhaps the landscape numbers coming from DxO. But it, it, am I understanding that right now based on the discussion that that's kind of the takeaway when I'm trying to compare cameras on your PDR numbers from your site? Yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. The answer no would be shorter, but it's the wrong answer. So the short right answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, but I, and I want to throw out a couple of things here. So I'm really fond of looking at the curves. Now, of course, the one number we report is the highest value of the curve, generally the furthest left value. Right. But the curves can also be quite telling. And so, for example, um, your 70 Mark II has a curve that has a bit of a what we call a shoulder to it. It starts off not exactly level, but sort of going across and then drops down. Right. Whereas a camera like the Nikon D810 drops down immediately from the highest value, sort of a more of a straight line with a slope of minus one, if you do the math of it. The flatter that straight line is, the more 
the more perfect the the electronic circuitry side the camera is, and it also leads to uh, a property called ISO invariance. But in any case, the curved shape is different. They could be much further apart at ISO 100 than at ISO 3200 because the shapes of the curves are different. So it's a little bit unfair also to look only at that highest number, right? particularly in, unless you're a landscape photographer, because that highest number doesn't mean much unless you have a huge dynamic range in the scenes you're trying to capture. Most of the people that I uh, converse with are much more interested in the low ISO uh, number, low light ISO, than they are in the PDR. Right. They want to know how far over it goes, right. not how far up it goes. So... I don't know if that helps, but as I said, there's there's a good math reason or physics reason. They're using read noise as a proxy for doing what I think is the right thing, which is looking at signal-noise ratio. Right, right. Okay. All right. I think that makes sense. The I, I think you're right. The the low ISO number, wait, is that what you call it? Low light ISO number. Low light ISO, yep, yep. That that is something that, of course, is far more interesting to me. And, and maybe I'll throw a quick scenario at you that um, to to see if you can help me with it. It's uh, when I go to shoot sports inside a dark basketball arena. Uh, I have to crank my ISO up to about ten thousand on my seventy-two, and I end up with images that that don't. They're not nearly as sharp. They look more muddy because of i i assume it's because of that high so because that's the thing that changed when i went into the gym and had to to really move my iso up so i'm still getting uh pictures that have a good exposure i'm using the same lens that i would in a lot of other situations and and i see a lot more detail and sharpness is that low light iso number as i compare it to something that has a bigger dynamic range should my expectation be I'm going to end up with uh, sharper, more detailed pictures if I had a camera that had a better low light ISO number? Does that make sense? It, it does, although you touch on two things. But first, I'll go more directly to what you said. If you used it at the same ISO setting. So, for right. example, if you got a camera with the, the way the curve moves is when it moves up, it also tends to move to the right. So anything with a higher you know, quote unquote dynamic range is also going to have a higher, for the most part, uh, a low light ISO setting. Right. But again, you have to look at the curves because they do cross each other sometimes. Uh, I'm going to wander slightly off topic here. You can and you can stop me, but the ISO setting. Let me tell you that I never set my ISO to anything other than 100. Okay. On my camera, and that I use ISO auto. Because photographically, the aperture and shutter speed are the important things. And whatever ISO I wind up with, that's just what I have to take. Right. And so I think you might also hamper yourself by going into that arena and explicitly setting a high ISO. When there were some shots that you took that you might have very well come out fine at a lower ISO setting. Okay. So you put the cart before the horse. When you raise the ISO setting, you made the exposure uh, process in the camera gather less light for that scene. And that's the key thing. You want to gather as much light as you can. So I'd encourage you to try your the equivalent of ISO auto for your for your Canon. I'm sure it exists. Yeah, it is. There's not an ISO. Mm -hmm. 
I, I often do it in manual because I want to control both, but you can use it obviously in auto, right. you know, in, in aperture or, or shutter priority. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, and, and when I compare the curves on your site, when I look at those curves, which, which again is, uh, or I want to point out, we didn't say this yet, but that's what I find more value in the PDR numbers and the, seeing the curves, because, uh, like you said, just having the straight out number of EVs that are supposedly supported there in the landscape number from DXO doesn't show you that detail. I don't get any, any sense for how things are changing as the ISO is increasing. And I love that out of the graphs on your site to be able to see that. And so you can get, you just, you have more detailed information to be able to compare cam one camera to another. And, uh, and I find that more meaningful and valuable to me, which is part of the reason I wanted to go into this was I, I am finding more value out of your PDR numbers than I am out of the landscape scores on DXO mark. So, um, I, I'm really glad we were able to talk about this. Um, oh, great. Thanks, Jeff. And while you were talking, I brought up the numbers quick. And at, at ISO 10,000 for the 7D Mark II, yeah. the PDR value is just 4.3. That's uh -huh. that's two stops below what I would consider to be acceptable. acceptable. Uh -huh. So, you know, I think once you get much over 2,000 with your camera, you're probably going to see noise oh, that sure. yeah, you yeah. don't like. Yeah. And it sacrifices but, the detail. I mean, I have to apply noise reduction and... and the camera's doing some of that too. It's applying it as it's writing out to the file. The Canon stuff's processing uh, some of that and trying to get trying to, to get the signal to noise ratio higher. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's exactly the way to explain it, but uh, I, I've definitely seen they they just come out. I call it muddy. They look muddy <laughs> when I when I take a look at the photos. So like you said, yeah, it's definitely. I know that it has definitely dipped below the threshold where it is. Uh, acceptable to me for sure, but it's a really difficult scene to shoot in. And, sure. and yes, if, uh, if I had a, a more expensive camera body, uh, it, I, I would, it would be better. That's just not where I'm at with, uh, how I'm doing photography. I'm using the tools I have and, and, uh, and that's what it is. So it, there are some situations where I would love to have, say the Canon 5D Mark IV, maybe the Nikon DA10, so that I could get, I had a chance, a better chance to capture that specific scene, but I do all kinds of photography. So <laughs> the, the, there's so many other things to work on that I don't feel like I need to upgrade my camera uh, at the moment um, for one, one scenario that I deal with occasionally. Um, and I still get pictures that are way better than anything the other people around me are, are having. Uh, cause they're trying to shoot with their phones or <laughs> with point and shoots or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so the relative comparison, people are just ecstatic. Like they, they're non-photographers. They don't even notice that it's got this extra noise or it looks a little muddier than what you can get in, in better lighting conditions. So it's, it's sure. not something that most people even care about. They're just way excited. They're, they're buying photos from me anyway, because I actually <laughs> caught their, their kid in a specific you know, well, shooting position. So. Well, that's good. It, it's not broken. Don't fix that's it. Right. But, that's right. <laughs> but, but, the, but the chart does say that if you w did go to the 5D Mark IV, you rented one or had access oh, sure. to one, you get a little bit more than a stop improvement right. in, in your in your low-light performance there. I want to throw out another uh, quick thing, complication if you like, but for people who visit the site who see the stuff that's down there, another thing that I test that DxOMark doesn't, isn't done commonly, is I test for something called pattern noise. 
And this is a pattern that might show in the deep shadows of your photographs might have some horizontal or vertical lines or have sort of little patchwork that becomes obvious. Some cameras have it more than others. It's called fixed pattern noise. And there's something called sensor heat maps on my site. And you can look at what the fixed pattern noise might be for your cameras. And uh, that's another thing that, that distinguishes them. Um, because it is a form of noise, it's built into the PDR results. And it's another reason why I might test two cameras and show them to be closer together than two cameras that DxOMark does only when based on read noise, because they're not paying attention to the fixed pattern noise. Right. Okay. Yeah. It just, Which you care about as a photographer. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's still visible noise. It's still something that affects the end result of the photograph. So, but it's more objectionable when it has a pattern. When you see a horizontal right. or vertical stripes, our brains pick that out. Yep. Right. They definitely do. All right. Well, I, I think we have run out of time on this episode, Bill. I think I could talk to you for a long time about the uh, the technical details of this stuff. It's, I find it fascinating, and uh, I'm really glad that you could come and join the show to to go through it. Um, so, thank you, thank you, Bill, for for doing that. I appreciate um, it, Jeff. It was we, fun. We may have to bring you back uh, later on. I'll I'll stay in touch with you, and we'll see if if maybe we have some other things. Listeners, if you have other questions you'd like for me to follow up with Bill on, let me know. I'll see if we can get him back on another another episode in the future and uh, and nerd out on some other stuff. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the podcast. As a quick reminder, you can suggest topics for the show through the Improve Photography Podcast. Facebook group. That's kind of a mouthful. But if you search on Facebook for Improved Photography Podcast, a group will probably show up. You can go ask to join that group. And we've had to do, because there's just too many uh, spam uh, accounts out there, we've had to add a question you have to answer in order to join that group. And the question is, what's a host of the show on the Improved Photography Podcast Network? So you can use my name, that's Jeff Harmon, as a correct answer to that question or Jim Harmer, which is the other the other guy who's really kind of running improved photography, and we are two different people, even though our names are really similar. But you can put any of those hosts um, in there. If you want to be really tricky, you could even put Bill's name in there right now, and we'll, we'll take that one. We'll know that you're listening to the episodes. We just want to distinguish uh, real people, real listeners from the spam accounts that are out there and try to keep those out of the Facebook group. So we, we added that to the, the questions. If you don't answer the question, we're not going to let you in the group. We're going to assume you're a spam account if you don't answer the question. Just part of the game that we have to play with Facebook. Okay, uh, you can also suggest topics for the show through Instagram where you can message at Podcast or the older method, email phototacopodcast at gmail.com. No question too basic or too complicated for the show. If I don't know the answer to the question, I will bring an expert like Bill on so that we can go through it. Also, be sure to take some time and head over to the mothership that makes all of this possible. That's improvephotography.com, where there's constant updates every business day, at least Monday through Friday. And, and sometimes more than that, we have updated articles out there. Very consumable, short content articles news, uh, gear, and lots of photo tip articles. I'm constantly learning from the articles that are being published out there in Improved Photography. We have some incredible writers who are doing a fantastic job of posting uh, information that is really helpful for people looking to improve their photography. It is the best way to improve your photography. Photo 
Views expressed on this program by independent host guests and callers do not necessarily reflect their views of Improved Photography LLC or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where a permission is reserved. Olay!